0: Hello! (laughs) And welcome to. So good to see you. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, No, no. Yes, Mercer, introduce yourself.
1: I am uh, Mercer Baradaran. I am the author of, most recently, The Color of Money Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap. And I'm also a professor of law at the University of Georgia.
0: And so we are going to have a whole Color of Money edition in honor of Mercer Baradaran, we are going to talk about black banking, we are going to talk about black wealth, we're going to talk about reparations, we're going to talk about opportunity zones, we're going to talk about history, we are going to put this all in context, we are going to go back centuries, we are going to talk about Haiti, we are going to talk, you have no idea how much amazing knowledge is going to get dropped in a relatively short podcast this is going to be dense fun interesting it's going to be not just me said but it's going to be me i should introduce myself i am felix Hammond of axios it is going to be anna shemansky hello and also emily peck of the huffington post hello and all of this is going to be coming up right here on slate money That's ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
1: 18 plus.
0: So let's start with your book. Yes. Which, which has been out for a while and everyone has read it already. But for those people who haven't read it already, what's it called?
1: It's called The Color of Money, uh, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap.
0: And this is an amazing history of black banking in America. And not just black banking, but also just the way that African-Americans found it incredibly hard to hold on to their money, and they tried to um, create their own banks, which Mm -hmm. you would think would help them hold on to their money, but it didn't really work out that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you look at the way banks work, right, you need, you know, this fractional reserve lending, right? So the money multiplier works if you're able to do fractional reserve lending, but you have to be part of a network of other banks. So that that lending uh, creates money, but it doesn't work if you have a segregated black bank who's, you can take to Deposits from black uh, depositors, and you can lend to black borrowers, but there's no way to, you know, quote unquote, control the black dollar, which was the the main purpose of these banks. Because as soon as you make a loan, um, that asset, whether it's a house or a company or whatever, is owned by some white person, usually because of the history of capital and who had it. And so, as soon as you make that loan, you're seeing these this money leak out of the community, and it would work if they were lending back in. So, so basically, were, you yeah. you
0: will lend. You'll lend money to an African-American borrower to buy a house. But when they buy the house, they're invariably buying it from a white person. So the cash winds up going to a white person and the money leaves the black community.
2: And also, I think you point out that the banks were essentially set up to fail because their depositors, they tended to be smaller deposits. Mm -hmm. It was a bit more erratic. And then a lot of their loans were a little bit riskier. They couldn't sell the loans. And throughout a lot of history, unfortunately, if you lent to an African-American, then the loan would immediately be, the value would decline so these yes these banks were set up to fail. essentially. Yes,
1: I mean they they didn't know that, and nobody was doing it cynically, but absolutely right. So the deposits are bank liability. So these are little mini loans that you're giving a bank, and banks don't want less than two thousand dollars or twenty five hundred, whatever their profitability ratio is. I mean these days banks are just getting their money from reserves anyway, but in the old days you actually needed deposits to make loans to some extent, and so if they're getting from wage earners, which you know m- most blacks, because of you know segregation and discrimination, were just you know low wage earners, so their deposits are very volatile and very risky. And so they have to, one, offset them you know, on the asset side, but also there are a lot of operating costs to these deposits, right? The asset side, that's where you're making the money, are on loans, right? So there aren't big businesses to lend to. That's more profitable. And the the home mortgages that they're paying for are in rapidly devaluing property. So the first black families that move into a neighborhood, and this is unfortunately still the case, not exactly, but kind of, the first black families move into a neighborhood, pay a premium or whatever that market rate is. And then as soon as a neighborhood tips into a black neighborhood, those values plummet. And uh, because of the market, it sort of embeds racism. We don't want to have black neighbors. We don't want to live in a black
0: neighborhood. So does this mean that, like, black banks are a bad idea and it's good that we basically don't have any anymore?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm careful not to make that because I think one of the things that black banks have done over their history, and this was just a really inspiring sort of look at this history, is that black banks have become, had been the sort of site of protest and community boycott. So MLK, Malcolm X, Jesse Jackson, who is just with today, I mean, they've used these black banks as a method of protest and a community sort of empowerment. And, um, you know, black banks weren't giving subprime loans during the run-up to the crisis. So you have these black banks that are actually a shield against exploitation. So they have these other services. As a wealth building mechanism, they're not useful. Uh, They're not Harmful, but they're not—they're not the—the they're not the answer, the—the the sort of silver bullet. And the problem is that white policymakers have kept pushing this segregated banking system as an answer to the racial wealth gap. And it,
3: yeah, it seems like—I mean—that's the thread running through your book from mm-hmm. the very start, from the Freedmen's Bank. It's like, mm-hmm. well, we're not going to give you any land, but here you can have yes. this bank, and then the—the the guy running the bank will basically steal all your money exactly <laughs> good luck
1: yeah and, and steal is strong i mean you know they call it looting but like he just like, speculated it away so i so said let me let me go back i mean there's mm-hmm. two pivotal points in history reconstruction and the civil rights movement where the black community you know rightfully says we need justice from these like a history of i mean during reconstruction is like enslavement for hundreds of years like at least give us the land that we have worked for hundreds of years and and, and I'm just going yeah. to
0: jump in very quickly because the one thing which um really jumped out at the book and I haven't been able to stop thinking about since I read it was this thing about how slaves were not just mm-hmm. slaves but they were collateral and you got like you had sort of collateralized slave yes. obligations yes. and they would become financialized and securitized in yes. it as it was the most astonishingly like terrifying but also sophisticated financial systems set up around a slave-based economy.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the the, the new history of capitalism um, sort of literature is really excellent on this. And I've been able to use a lot of that. That wasn't around before, but in the last five or six years, there's been a lot of great sort of balance sheet analysis of slavery. How do they collateralize? How do they use slave bodies? Men and women, they're insuring them. They're, you know, By getting other loans based on this collateral and they're sort of bundling them and securitizing them and it's not just a southern thing right so these are the planters in the south that own the collateral but it's New York merchants and Liverpool um, you know traders that are also using these slave bodies as money and then of course the cotton that they're picking that's the least of it but but yes the slave bodies were capital themselves and so you have this transition from you know being capital to trying to become capitalists, and and so they're they're saying all of the abolitionists who are serious abolitionists and the the, you know Frederick Douglass and others are saying, "You need land. Without land, freedom, and participation in capitalism, that's a farce." And and they were right because what the cotton traders did not want is for the U.S. to go the way of Haiti. When you have land, when you own land, you're going to grow subsistence crops because you, you're going to eat right. And cotton is a debt crop cotton is not I mean it's profitable when it is but it's not a way to feed a family um, and so they knew then in Haiti they just stopped growing the slave crops and they started growing subsistence crops and so the the north and and you know the merchants in Great Britain were saying we can't have this so that's why they couldn't have land so instead of land they got the Freedmen's Bank um, same with civil rights and civil rights you know there's different groups saying we want integration so we want to move in your neighborhood <laughs> because we've been prohibited so we want to cut into this FHA mortgage Thing and or we want reparations. And those were serious plans. And Nixon sort of does this thing again that was happening with the Freedmen's Bank is like have, have black capitalism, have treasury deposits in black banks and we'll do contract set-asides. Affirmative action was a Nixonian thing. So it's really just using sort of the rhetoric of free market capitalism against these demands. And these demands that were, you know, we, you have unjustly discriminated against us by state policy. And so what these leaders, Johnson and Nixon are saying and others are saying the market will fix the thing that state policy backed by violence, by the way,
3: created. And that's the, that was so interesting to me because mm-hmm. um, the other pivot point you really focus on in the book is, of course, the New Deal. And that was I think at one point you call it or someone calls it policy apartheid because it was yes. like here was the government yes. and public policy coming in to rescue all these people and help them become homeowners but not black people. Exactly. And they basically get pushed out. So it's like they get the free market capitalism solution, and yes. everyone else gets the socialist solution. So, totally. so yeah. And given, we call that the American dream. So, it's like, totally.
0: Instead of land. Yeah. Now, I mean, we have to talk about yeah. this because it's it's now on the agenda. Thank you, Elizabeth Warren. Yes. Um, A reparations, the new. 40 acres is this like is this going to be another thing that people are going to talk about for however many years and nothing's going to happen or like what talk a little bit about reparations this is
1: the thing i mean i think sometimes we get caught up in terminology like capitalism socialism reparations is another one of these things where everyone thinks of reparations and like their cartoon bubble just doesn't match up right and so what i'm saying is 40 acres or a mule whatever the anti-redlining thing is wherever you want it Sort of peg that claim. The claim is that state policy has extracted labor and goods from the black community and has given whites. I mean, not just the FHA, Homestead Acts, and all of these stuff that were racially exclusionary for generations. And so somehow that needs to be remedied. So, so South Africa has truth and reconciliation. You know, the Nuremberg trials. There is a sense of like you, you have been suffer- you have suffered an injustice, and we need to make it right. And all the civil rights acts do. And I don't want to underplay them. But what this the 1965 and um, the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act does is guarantee to the black population the rights that they were already guaranteed in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, right? Now we're saying we're serious this time, right? It doesn't do anything to remedy that past injustice. And so call it reparations, call it justice, call it whatever you want. I don't care. We just need to put capital or land or whatever the modern equivalent is of that wealth um, that was created for whites and not for blacks
0: because the the statistic you you have in your book, which I think is not as well known as it should be, is that during slavery before slavery was abolished, um, blacks in America had about zero point five percent of the total wealth. Mm-hmm. And now we have abolished slavery, and that that zero point five percent has gone all the way up to like, like
1: one one point five percent exactly. <laughs> and it,
2: isn't and yeah. isn't a lot of this story around housing? I mean, I think this yes. is yeah. what you seem to mm-hmm. say in the book, and I think yeah. it makes a lot of sense looking at government policy. As you know, Emily, you also mentioned that what the FHA loans did in order to create a white middle class to create white wealth. And I guess I'm just thinking in terms of policies moving forward, if housing is one of the biggest differences, is that an area to focus on?
1: Yeah. So ha- housing is the root of the problem. I don't know if it's the solution, but it, it's, it's a start. And I mean, the rule of capital is those who have it just make more. Right. So those who own slaves as capital got to own property later. Right. And use that stuff to own whatever it is. So now we're talking about like, you know, the tech capital that is capital without actually land. So whatever it is, those who had capital are still going to have capital, right? JP Morgan is going to be around for as long as money is around, right? And so so maybe the future, the remedy isn't in housing, but that's certainly the cause. I happen to think that housing has to be a part of it because for most people who don't have, you know, 401ks and stocks and all that stuff, the house is still their primary asset. Now, we have to talk about what kind of loan. Where is the house? And there are places in the, in America now where that house isn't worth. It's not holding their equity. It's diminishing. And so, we have to put caveats in it. But yes, that is the cause of it. And I want to say I want to point out something about the New Deal as well. I mean, we talk about the New Deal and the you know the Progressive Era of reforms of the Wilson administration and on. So we we leftists, and I'm going to include myself proudly as a leftist. Kind of want to redo the new. Deal. So we see, we're seeing like the new green, the new New Deal, the Green New Deal, the progressive era, like new progressives, and and I, and I want I, you know one one of the things that's missed is okay, we're gonna do the New Deal, but we're going to, we're not gonna have the oversights or the blind spots or the gaps that it had last time, which were race. But the New Deal was built on white supremacy. The progressive era reforms that the Wilson administration and the FDR administration pushed were pushed by Southern Democrats. They were pushed by populists. And and the early populist movement was an interracial movement, but not the later one. Um, And so the later movements, the, the Wilson administration is a white supremacist administration. They're able to pass these laws because they're able to convince white workers to use whiteness as opposed to their interracial solidarity. I mean,
3: that seems to be the big political question right now is if you can do populism without the without the racism, because Trump won on the populism with the
1: racism. Yes. We have to. And I think this the, the the thing that I get so frustrated about is like, well, is it about class or is it about race? And every time I talk about the racial wealth gap, someone always asks, well, is it a class thing, this class race thing? And you never hear that when, when you talk about like gender, the gender wage gap. The people aren't like, well, isn't this a class thing? Well, sure. But like I can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Like right. it can be race and it can be class. It certainly is race and it certainly is class. And those things intersect in weird ways where you have class being used In racist ways. And this is the Trump phenomenon. This is the progressive, the New Deal phenomenon of we will give white workers in the South white supremacy to get them on board for this plan. Um, And so we have to uncouple those in a way. And I don't have the solutions. I'm. Just, I just want to point out that it's a problem to put put those things against each other.
3: And the and the racial the racial wealth gap doesn't doesn't care about class. Like if you right. look at the data, even right. for professionals, people with Absolutely. degrees, it's still like this massive gap. That Huge is gap. Getting bigger? Is that is, correct? Is getting
1: bigger? Yes.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. Two percent
0: So let's talk about the thing which is in the news right now, which is the official thing which exists in public policy today, Mm -hmm. which is trying to bring capital um, into struggling communities of mostly, you know, black and brown people, which is our favorite new thing called Opportunity Zones. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Long Island City is an Opportunity Zone. We might talk about that a bit later. But, Mercer, what is an Opportunity Zone and, like, is... Is this something that you're seeing people actually get excited about? Or is this just something that Anthony Scaramucci thinks he can make lots, lots of money?
1: <laughs> Both. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, and this is where my work comes in. And, and, and the reason why it's, it's a little bit complicated is I I am totally opposed to this idea of policy. And and here's, here's why. You have these black segregated spaces that are created... By violence and racial covenants and the FHA, right? So you've redlined people into this area, and we call it a ghetto because it is not, you know, it's not a black community. They didn't choose to live in, you know, Harlem and, and, and South Chicago or Baltimore. That was the only place that they were able to live because they, the other places weren't open to them. So we have these things called ghettos. And all of a sudden, and this is where Nixon comes in, right? Nixon is able to use, and, and so the black, so there's two ways of, of responding to the ghetto. One, as James Baldwin says, is the only way to deal with the ghetto is the only way. To improve the ghetto is to improve it out of existence, right? So integration. So this is the George Romney, MLK. So there's one way to get rid of the so, ghetto. So is, James
0: Baldwin is a gentrifier.
1: Well, kinda. Of, I mean, he's he's just such a creative thinker. I think he could <laughs> come up with arguments for both. Um, so so there's that way. And then the other, not a gentrifier. I want to say an integrationist. And that's an old word and it's got some baggage now, but basically like let people live where they want, but push them out so this is a George Romney like we're going to create public housing in white suburbs and he gets like you know a white riot after he suggests it so there's integration and then there's reparations so this is what the black nationalists were saying okay if we're going to have a black ghetto we want sovereignty so we see this as a colony and what colonies do against the colonists is say we want not just you know black businesses, but we want control of our school boards, of our hospitals, of our police, all of that stuff. So these were the two options. And so what Nixon says is, okay, well, I'll take your black power movement and I'll give you black capitalism. And so he starts calling the ghetto. He doesn't do it because he's not quite sophisticated enough, but he calls it like opportunities and capital. And then you get Reagan calling it empowerment zones. And then you get Clinton calling it like, you know, niche capitalism. So Larry Summers says, You know, black businesses are like market capitalists coming in and finding profits and entrepreneurs where nobody else. It's like this neoliberal, like, we're not going to give you capital. We're going to send you entrepreneurs and (laughs) disrupt the ghetto, right? And so now you've got this. So this Opportunity Zones is not new. It is so Nixonian. It is so Clintonian and Reagan and all of this stuff. It is basically the market's response to the ghetto. But it's it's,
0: it's not just the markets. It's also legislators right so yes. just to be clear what we're talking about here yes. is that if you have a bunch of investments in amazon or some high-flying yeah. stock and you bought it very low and if you sell it you have to pay lots of capital gains tax and it's a good capitalist you don't want to pay capital gains tax right. then the government will come along and say hey yeah. we have a way to mean which will stop you from having to pay the capital gains tax. Just, just take all of the money you get from selling your Amazon stock and put it into one of these opportunity zones and then your sale is tax free and you can keep all of your money and yeah, now well, what you are doing or you know yeah. with, with asterisks and um, and you can then invest it in these zones which no one entirely knows what that means but the idea I guess is that it's affordable housing and, and generally trying to make these parts of America which are you know, poorer than their neighbors, like richer again. And this is
3: part of the mm, Trump tax bill. Well, and just t- to be t- clear, yeah, this is actually
2: based on a um, an, an act that was put forward before the actual tax bill. It was supported mm. by Cory Booker. It was supported. It's a very bipartisan bill, just to be clear. And then right. it was it was attached to the, the tax cuts. And I will say, if you look at a lot of the literature that's coming out around this, they're very well aware of all of the failings of previous attempts to do this kind of thing. They explicitly say, like, there's been a lot of mixed results and a lot of not great results. But what they have seen where there were certain types of programs and certain credits that actually seem to work somewhat to increase employment. So their idea was, well, let's see what actually worked. Let's try to create a program that replicates that, but on a bigger scale and not simply focused on real estate, which was one of the problems in the past. So I agree that I think historically a lot of the kind of opportunity zone, all of that has not been... Overly successful, there have been some successes, and I think it's reasonable to say, well, this is a way to encourage more investment in these areas. Because if you look at some of the previous tax credits, it was something like you have the Urban Institute saying, you know, two thirds of this investment would not have happened without these credits. So, the, do so you the first need question, right? I
0: this, mean, is this is the, is the question. Thing, like, so, why, why is inv- exactly yeah. is is there is there real evidence? And this is why I'm really asking you, mess It's yeah. like you've been talking to a bunch of you know, policy wonks about this and some of them are very enthusiastic about it and some of them aren't. But do you think that if you have an area which is largely black and brown people that like dropping a bunch of money from helicopters onto that area is going to actually help?
1: Well, it's not money for them. So this is the thing. So you you get the investors. So it's like, you know, I use the analogy before, like it's like having cancer and someone giving you a free car. Like, that's awesome. You are a net benefit, beneficiary. If you get that car, that's really great and you're going to use it and it's going to help you out in your life. So yes, if we're measuring opportunity zones as increased employment and investments and money, great. If we're measuring, what I'm trying to measure is, is community wealth building, this is not the answer to this, right? So so you you can call it what, what it what it is and there is some utility here to get more investors and more employment, but it is not wealth creating because those people in that community are not the investors. The investors are always going to be the people People with capital, the the tenants, who are like
0: people like Anthony Scaramucci, they're they're white people. Or the from tech outside. guys. I mean, this was yeah. a
1: bipartisan thing, but it was also pushed by a lot of the tech people who wanted to diversify their asset portfolio. So this has been a long time coming, and there has been other plans by Cory Booker and um, Cleaver, uh, Representative Cleaver and others who have been pushing opportunity zones. But it finally got passed because of this sort of consortium of tech people. And so they're they're looking at opportunity zones like like you know the Mission District of San Francisco, Salt Lake is an opportunity zone, as right. you pointed out in this article, and a couple other. Like I mean, Atlanta, the opportunity zones are not... But even if they were, right? So even if you're talking about a totally distressed area, what this says is if you're a big company and you want to invest in this area, you get a tax credit, okay? So what does investment look like? Let's say like the best case scenario is you totally disrupt, you change this area from distressed to a new hub of, let's say, Delta, okay? What happens to the people on the ground? They were tenants to begin with. They weren't homeowners. So they're not getting the upswing in property values, Maybe you get other small business, maybe they're getting employed, but in 10 years, they're not living there anymore. If you have revitalized the area with outside investments, that area looks like Harlem does now. The people who were tenants can no longer afford it. They're being pushed out, right? So unless you're giving people a stake in the land and and allowing them to have the equity of the upswing, I don't see how this helps fix the racial wealth gap.
3: Like the opportunity is for the
2: investors, not for the actual people who need help. Yes. Well, but I, I also think just that when this was being put forward, it was not being put forward necessarily as the idea is this is going to solve the racial wealth gap. it was going it was the idea that like we do have a lot of localized poverty, and this is one way to get people to put money in for a long-term investment. And it wasn't and and now, look, you have a lot of people who supported this that do support other things like potentially baby bonds and these other mm-hmm. other ideas. I, I think the idea that putting money into a community will necessarily mean that the people who are currently living there will only be worse off. I don't no, really... No, no, we're not no, saying no, like no, that. You get the car. You get the car. Right? You, right. Get, yeah. you get the car, but But also, they won't necessarily leave.
0: But that's, but, yeah. yeah but, so this is where we need to segue yeah. into Amazon. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun.
2: <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
4: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh?
2: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No process forward prohibited by law. 18+ terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: We were very careful to not talk about Amazon last mm-hmm. week because sure. we knew that you were coming on this okay. show and and so now we get to talk about the fiasco that was Mm -hmm. Amazon's HQ2 in New York City, and only in New York. It doesn't seem Mm -hmm. to have become a fiasco in in Nashville or in Crystal City. But in New York, it was a big um, focus of of protests, and local politicians started coming out against it. And eventually, Amazon threw its toys out of the pram and decided they were picking up their toys and going home. And they left, and um, one or two tears were shed by, like, Lloyd Blankfein. And then... um, (laughs) And what was fascinating to me about this entire story was that it was all based around this opportunity zone of of Long Island City, which how it got, you know, there's obviously a huge amount of sort of political maneuvering in terms of trying to get these places deemed to be opportunity zones, even if... Amazon had done no negotiating whatsoever with New York State or New York City. They could have just come in to Long Island City and built their headquarters as of right, got most of the tax break, not all of them, mm-hmm. but most of the tax breaks they were going to get, they could have got as of right. They could have built it and then everyone would kind of look across the East River from Manhattan one day and they'd notice Amazon mm-hmm. there and they go, oh, I guess there's another big corporation come to New York only this time it's in Queens. And yeah. that's not what happened, but is, you know, I feel like if you're protesting Amazon coming into Queens, like you're really protesting the existence of all of these incentives which exist, whether or not you have the negotiations.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, it does seem that Amazon really cocked this up. right? Oh, totally. I mean, from the start, making it into a beauty contest for totally. all these municipalities across the country. Why, Why? Draw attention to, like, the biggest company in the world going after, like, Tax breaks, all you know, from from poor areas, It's and then just like, not a good look. And then requesting and then, a helicopter landing, yeah, pad, and requesting like, the on, helipad, yes. and then <clears throat> coming into New York City and thinking it was going to be easy, which is ridiculous. And then acting kind of like, uh, I mean, maybe it was a good thing that they walked away. I kind of think, in the end, probably it's smart that they walked away, but um, <laughs> not thinking that they were going to have to negotiate yeah. with with activists and protesters here was also really. Yeah, it's seems like, it's like, dumb. like York, I want to know who came up is with the strategy. Messy <laughs> from the start. city, yeah.
0: and if you come into New York and expect 100% <clears throat> right, um, you know. To be greeted as liberators or whatever, yeah. like.
1: <laughs> well, and it's a free rider problem too, right? Like, they, Amazon wants to come to New York because New York has great public infrastructure that has been paid for by the taxpayers for a long time, right? I mean, yeah, Robert Moses kind of screwed that up a, a bit, but but Long Island has, you know, you've, we, the public infrastructure has educated their workers. That we have built roads and subways and buses where a lot of the country hasn't had that in, investment in public infrastructure, and they're like, we will ride upon your public infrastructure and pay. No money to build it in the future, and so this is the the problem of like putting up, you know, letting these like like you said, a beauty contest, or like this, you know, relying on Amazon to be this like fairy godmother of jobs, where we could actually use public resources and tax Amazon and create the jobs ourselves, right? I mean, there's no reason Amazon should get a tax break, right? And um, there's no reason at all.
0: And one, one go wherever things, you want, right? But like <laughs> every, thing, any, yeah.
2: as you said though, any company who would have come there would have gotten a tax right, break. Right, and that's like, the yes. problem. And, and, that's, and if yes. you b- believe that, that's fine. I, I guess I would just say that Amazon was going to bring in a lot more tax revenue than the, like they were going to get. It. The city and the state were going to be better off. They were going to create, and they were only going to get the tax breaks if they actually created the jobs that they said that they were going to create. These were good jobs, and so... There were good jobs for, like, well-educated... Yes, which are the kind of know, jobs we, we a lot of that we, we need in the city. Right. In no, the city. Actually, we have plenty of those jobs in the city. We
0: have a 3% you, unemployment rate. Yeah. If you are a
2: well-educated computer engineer, it is not hard for you to find work in New York City. Part of the yeah. problem, if you look at New York City moving forward, is that we currently have the financial industry, which is shrinking. We have media, which is not doing particularly well. We have maybe fashion, which are also not doing particularly well. New York City is looking to the future and saying, where is the growth coming? And you have a lot of people in the state and the city saying, we need to start investing in trying to get like new economy companies to come. Now, does this mean that no other company is ever going to come to New York? No, of course it doesn't. But I I know this is not going to be a popular belief, but I I think that this is not a good thing for New York. I think it shows that, frankly, New York needed... Amazon more than Amazon needed in New York.
1: I, I think that's, but, I mean, I, I disagree because the data doesn't back that up. And one is because I think you have looking at who can afford to live and work in New York. It is not the $100,000 jobs. I mean, maybe Long Island City is a different thing. But you have you have New York and and San Francisco that are super cities right now. They are getting, I mean, there are these hubs of every Everyone wants to go to New York or, or San Francisco right. and a few other, Atlanta maybe, the greater Atlanta region. But you have all these other cities that are just devastating, devastated, dying, right, in spirals downwards, right? And so you have New York and, and San Francisco actually have created an ecosystem of jobs and, and, and uh, equity and worth that, I, I mean, I think if New York City's worried, then the rest of us are Exactly, screwed. and I think <laughs> the way that
0: you measure this yeah. is in property values. You know, right. like, in many ways, the if you look at the difference, if you look at the value of land, like if you look at the difference between how much it costs to buy an apartment in New York versus how much it would cost to build that apartment, you know, that's like, that's the rents that are being extracted by the owners of the land. And the fact is that the land in New York is the most valuable land in America precisely Mm -hmm. because everyone wants to be here. Everyone wants to be able to, Mm-hmm. It's competing to pay a premium to live here because, as Richard Florida puts it, the world is mm-hmm. spiky. And the New, New York mm-hmm. is like the spikiest of the yes. spikes. And, you, are, you know, are you right, Anna, that like there is a, you know, a, a, a possible world in the future where New York becomes less rich? Mm-hmm. You know, in a way we can we can but hope, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> because if if. America becomes a little bit more evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. That would probably be a good thing.
3: Yeah, I think one good thing this has done is sort of drawn attention to these subsidies that different cities and municipalities, you know, give out and sort of painted them in a bad light because one thing that would be good is if everyone stopped doing this kind of mm-hmm. thing like we saw what happened with Foxconn, right, in Wisconsin, oh, in Wisconsin where they it was a promised it was a fiasco and <clears throat> one benefit would be to stop treating these stop kissing ass Stop kissing corporate
1: ass all Seriously. the time. Exactly, like, It's a race it, to the bottom. It, like, it, you know, you you can't, can't be, have yeah.
0: cities and states competing with each other to see who can offer the greatest tax breaks to co- exactly. corporations because that just results in exactly. corporations paying no taxes. As we just saw with Amazon, who for the second year running, you know, if you look at their 10Ks, if you look at their annual reports, it looks as though they're basically not paying any taxes. Now, yeah. this is not the same as their tax filings. Their tax filings are confidential. We don't know what their corporate income taxes are, yeah. but... They're not high if they're even positive.
1: And and, and is right. I mean, the, the more jobs you get in a in a place, the more jobs are created. So you're right that like putting a net infusion of twenty five thousand or fifty thousand jobs creates more jobs, right? So you have Amazon workers, but you need nail salons and yoga studios and all of that stuff. It's just that New York can't bear to pay those low service workers that much money. So there's this there's this great book called The New Geography of Jobs, and and they kind of map out like of apples, whatever. Ten thousand, twelve thousand workers—they've created sixty thousand other service sector jobs. But the question is, where do you house those people? Where do you house a nail salon person? And in San Francisco and New York, the poor—you know—and the nail salon workers are now being pushed further and further out into the city. And that's fine, right? So New York and San Francisco have these ecosystems of jobs creating more jobs. But then you have the rest of the country that I I tend to worry about too, is like you have these areas where no one is coming, right? So if Amazon wanted to do a public service, they could move to Detroit, you know, or to Baltimore um, or to ohio where they could attract workers and create jobs there they could revitalize in one fell swoop or we could do public programs right so i've suggested a few like you know taking a city as an ecosystem and adding some infusions of you know fed financing whatever to to bring in a bunch of people and revitalize a city you just need it's like a a complex network of a bunch of different things that go into it you can't do it with one company but you could do it with three different things and then wait and and, benefit, and actually it does
0: know? happen like my, my favorite example of this happening is Frisco Texas yeah and that was just a mm-hmm. dusty bunch of farms it's it's just north of Dallas. Um, there was nothing there 20 years ago. It is now home to, like, 20 Fortune 500 headquarters. It is growing incredibly fast. They're building a new high school every six months. Um, It's got an incredibly good school system. It's got an incredibly, like, high standard of living. Mm. Everyone loves it. It's possible to build these things ex nihilo, just literally out of nothing. What Amazon did when it announced its HQ2 beauty contest Mm -hmm. was basically saying... We are so big and our headquarters has the potential to be so big that we can change the facts on the ground and we can create a Mm -hmm. whole new area that does exactly what Maas is talking about and Mm -hmm. creates a whole bunch of ancillary jobs. And that's why a whole bunch of cities and states got excited about the idea. And then after looking at all of the proposals and getting bribed, you know, billions of dollars by various different municipalities, Amazon says, "Ah, actually, you know what, we're just going to go to the rich places where we don't need to change Mm -hmm. the facts on the ground because the facts on the ground are actually the best in america Mm -hmm. exactly and that was just
4: ridiculous
1: and and this is seattle too i mean seattle so microsoft and and uh, starbucks before they got in there seattle was a crazy bad city, right? It was on this downward spiral. And, you know, Bill Gates wants to go back home, and he was in Albuquerque, moves up to Seattle. Um, Then you have Starbucks, and now look at Seattle. I mean, Seattle overnight went from being a downward city into an upward one. So how do you do that? I mean, I have a plan right now with Roosevelt on, uh, it's not out yet, but the Homestead Act, right? It's 21st Century Homestead Act. Don't laugh. I have proposed postal banking, too. I'm like one of these people that (laughs) gets old things from the dustbin and puts them out. Um, So... The Homestead Act is, you know, you take Detroit, Baltimore, Ohio, whatever city is declining, there's a lot of abandoned homes in these areas. So 60% of the homes are abandoned. They're foreclosed on, usually owned by the city. Using Fed financing, and I have some complicated, but really, like, not tax cuts, you buy up this land, you hand it over to residents with certain qualifications, so under 50000 or whatever, give them the financing with, you know, whatever FHA sort of finance, low interest loan, and then have a public works program or two, right? So in Savannah, Georgia, we had a port. The gov- the city just um the state of Georgia created a public port, and it's one of the most profitable public ports. So some sort of public project you're going to, you know, maybe do broadband, whatever, and to sort of revitalize it using public financing. I mean, that doesn't have to be what we do, but there are creative public ways instead of waiting for Amazon and giving away essentially what we would use in public spending on tax credits, we could actually spend that and create the upward benefits. I mean, that was the heart of the New Deal, right? Mm -hmm. Public works projects that were the mixed economy. right? The the
2: public works projects weren't actually what were the most successful parts of the New Deal. I mean, I think the most successful parts of the New Deal were the establishing of certain regulations and also establishing certain policies that later on, whereas, I mean, the New Deal was the actual. A lot of the programs did very little to spur development and employment. It wasn't until the war. Not that the FHA, the,
1: US... the GI. Bill. Oh, I agree.
2: I mean, yeah, I agree. Yeah. That's why I said the things that later on did have a benefit. But I'm just saying, I think the history of extremely successful public works is mixed.
1: Yeah. Yes. It's just so sure.
3: interesting. You can do that it wrong. <laughs> like we're willing. New York's willing to give Amazon three billion in tax breaks, but if we say, "What about reparations?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are like, like oh, "That's we don't crazy. give away money." Yeah. We don't right. do that. We don't ask, right?
1: We only ask, how are you going to pay for it when it's like a social benefit? We don't ask, how are you going to pay for it when it's this massive tax cut? Or I mean, not to mention military spending. We never ask, (laughs) how are we going to pay for a war? You know, we ask, how are we going to pay for reparations? Mm -hmm.
4: The same way we pay for the war. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
0: Numbers round. Anna Shemansky, you can go first. Uh,
4: my number is
2: 295 pounds. Okay. So this was the cost of the Brexit box for Brexit stockpiling made easier. <laughs> <laughs> it apparently oh, has boy. freeze-dried food that lasts 30 days, uh, water filters, and a fire starting gel. I'm like, so this is, <laughs> this is a real thing.
0: Stock up on canned goods and 295-pound Brexit boxes. What's that, like 350 bucks? Like yes. Yeah. Or, or it will be about... 20 bucks after, after Brexit goes horribly wrong. Uh, Marcia, did you bring a number? Yes,
1: um, 22. Uh, so it's not a funny number. Sorry, it's a sad one. Um, tw- white families have 22 times the wealth of black families. Okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> My number is $1.2 million. That is the income of an unnamed in- investor mm. um, who is in this great piece in the New York Times that just came out about how high income earner elite professionals are very very unhappy and the, the man who earns the 1.2 million dollars says he's just so unhappy hates his life he can't he contemplated taking a job that paid half as much and his wife only, laughed at only him. only six hundred thousand only six hundred thousand dollars his wife was like we can't afford Sorry. that it's a it's a nice little piece yeah
0: um my number is 55 which is this little project that i just came out with on axios i've decided that we have talked too much about unicorns and so now we need to talk about minotaurs and so unicorns are companies which are private VC backed companies which are valued at a billion dollars minotaurs are Private VC backed companies that have raised a billion dollars in equity capital. So, not like they would be worth a billion dollars if even if all they did was take the money that people had invested and in, they just put it in the bank in a checking account, paying 0%. <laughs> um, we did a little, we tallied this up. We found 55 Minotaurs. These are companies which have raised over a billion dollars, um, which just to put that in perspective, when Eileen Lee, this venture capitalist, coined the term. Unicorns, there were thirty nine unicorns. So there are now more minotaurs today than there were unicorns just. A and few that years was just ago. like
1: ten years ago, yeah. she coined it?
0: So um, just
1: to bring it back around, a third of black families have zero to negative wealth. Wow. Just to <laughs> you mean they're not
0: raising a billion dollars by, by, like, I mean, it's amazing. Maybe
1: the minotaurs invest in opportunity zones and trickle and down some of that money. You should,
0: you should read the the Gideon Lewis crowd piece in the New York Times magazine about WeWork and talking about how, like, they've raised, I think they're up, they're like 8.7 billion or something yeah. in equity capital that they've raised yeah. to invest in what is, according to Gideon, is basically a way of trying to hold at bay the existential angst of modernity or something well, like that. Well, I mean,
1: the thing that makes That's me a, weird, a little bit happy piece. about the minotaurs and the unicorns and the owners thereof are that they're building these bunkers of survivalist bunkers in New Zealand and <laughs> these other places. They're terrified of the class revolution that they're, you know, and, and other are just like gl- basically the results of their, you know, uh, greediness. They're actually, I don't think they sleep well at night. And so they have these bunkers, which... Makes me a little bit happy to think that it's not just pure, like, there's some existential fear in there of what they're doing. I
0: did get one being. response on Twitter from someone saying, oh, I know why you called it a Minotaur. It's because the Minotaur required an annual human sacrifice.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Bl- literally blood. Exactly. Yeah. So
0: on on which sanguine yes. note we will wrap up this edition of slate money thank you so much mercer for coming all the way in from where did you come in? we all in new york because you're, yes. you're coming in all the way in from yes. midtown thank
1: you so much um
0: and me. so yeah many thanks to mercer for coming in many thanks to max jacobs for producing many thanks to every everyone out there for listening and for sending emails to slate money at slate.com and we will talk to you next week on slate money